0: Hey guys, thank you for joining us today on Talking Scripture. Hopefully you've heard that we are now on podcasting apps. You can find Talking Scripture on Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify. Can you take a minute and just rate and subscribe to our podcast? That will go a long way in helping people find us. Welcome to Talking Scripture, I'm Mike, and today we're gonna do a really special podcast. I'm really excited to have her today. We're talking to Mandy Green. She is a good friend, a neighbor. She loves the scriptures. She knows uh, Hebrew, Greek, Russian, English, and she recently appeared on a podcast called Sunday on Monday. The episode is called Have a Very Merry Easter, right around the 13th of March, and it's a podcast where they talked about the Marys in the New Testament narrative. Today, we're going to be talking about Mary Magdalene, uh, what her story tells us about Easter, about women. We'll be examining Mary Magdalene in textual tradition and in extra-biblical literature, as well as history. And so before we get started, I just want to say we're not declaring any kind of doctrine for the church. We're certainly not uh, proclaiming anything as absolute dogmatic truth. We're just looking at tradition and history as it pertains to Mary Magdalene, and hopefully you'll find this discussion to be very thought-provoking, as I know I have, and we'll see kind of where it goes.
1: Yeah, that's great. Do some myth-busting.
0: Yeah, we'll do myth-busting. So I guess I'm just going to pitch this question at you. Who was Mary Magdalene? Like When you get asked that question, what do you say?
1: Well, Mike, honestly, she is the most underrated, critical figure in the history of the world. And what's sad is that none of us really know why. That's what I would say. And then give me five hours to tell you why. No, not really. But she plays a an amazing role in the restored gospel, one that we've got to dig up just a quite a bit. But we'll start on that path today and then, you know... Leave it up to you if you want to pursue it. Let's start with uh, Luke 7, because we're going to run into a lot of things in Luke 7 about her. It's not actually about her. Where this comes from is Pope Gregory I, in 591 AD, is giving a sermon in the Church of St. Clement in Rome, and he recognizes the woman in Luke 7, and this is the woman who has many, many sins, and she comes and anoints the feet of Jesus, well, the first record we have of that happening is Luke 7, and he just says that that's Mary Magdalene, and that's where we get this idea of her being this harlot, this prostitute. But the fact is, none of that's actually true. And what's even more interesting is that this woman, in Latin, is said to be a peccatrix, which would be a woman who has a lot of sins, Mm. But if you were going to say a prostitute, it would be a meritrix. So he didn't even use the correct Latin in his address for it to be a harlot. So she's a sinful woman. We don't know why. But what's interesting about sin in the context of Luke 7 is that it can be someone in, and you know this, Mike, to commit quote unquote sin is hamartia, right? It's... It's to miss the mark.
0: Isn't that an archery term? Yes. Like I'm missing the target, right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: You just miss the target. It's not you're doomed. It's not you're dead and you'll die forever in burning hell. It's you miss the mark.
0: Which I think we can all relate. That's pretty much my life. (laughs) Right? Well, and I hope it's (laughs)
1: hopeful to you to say, I missed the mark. So what do I need to do? I need to adjust my stance or you know, get stronger arms or better aim. or... Or better
0: arrow. Yeah.
1: Right? Right. All of those are fixable things. The Savior always, always uses that word. Uh, When it gets kind of changed is when we get into uh, Jerome's translation in Latin, and that's post-Council of Nicaea, so they've adopted all these creeds, which absolutely influence his Latin translation of the Bible. And King James comes from that. Now what's so interesting is that if you talk to someone in the Eastern Orthodox religious traditions, they never think this.
0: They never think what?
1: That Mary's a prostitute or a bad person or bad things. None of it.
0: Do you think that Gregory was motivated for w- whatever political reason? For those of you at home, Gregory is a Western Roman Catholic pope. pope. Of course, it's 591, so we haven't had the split till 1054. But in right around 1054, East and West split. And Eastern Orthodox, they don't go with this interpretation.
1: No. No, because they're reading the Greek. So we're reading the Greek so that we understand it correctly, which is what this would originally be written in. That's why we go to Hebrew and Greek is yeah. to get a better idea.
0: Don't you think that there's something going on? Or do you want to talk about that now or later, like why he's doing well,
1: this? So the reason he's doing this is because there there's a tradition of Mary being the bride of Christ and having a bloodline. So... the the tradition and i and i use the word tradition intentionally because it's not in the scriptures right yes yeah well and it's not something you could like emphatically prove but let me tell you what i've noticed in my quest for truth when i pull a thread if it keeps pulling there's something there if there's nothing to this you'll pull and that thread will pull right out pretty quickly So I started pulling one of these threads about Mary, and it's tied to about 30 other threads, and I start pulling those threads, and I'm still pulling. So there's something here, at least for me. And I would say that to your listeners. Everything we talk about today is amazing and awesome, but if it doesn't speak to you, then just let it go.
0: Now, you mentioned how you started pulling on this thread, and you'll kind of help us go on this sleuthing quest that you went through. If you're somebody who's interested in this, that is the joy of this, the joy of discovery and figuring stuff out, right?
1: Well, and that's the other half of, some people it doesn't speak to them. Others of you, I'm telling you, it's going to light a fire in you. This this pilot light's going to flip on. You're going to have a need and a hunger and a... It's going to warm you and feel you, especially as a woman. We know so little about women of power and strength and beauty and fortitude. And there is no greater example of that than Mary Magdalene. So that's also true. Um, just take the spirit and go with what it, what it inspires you to do. I'm just a girl talking.
0: Okay, so do you want to talk about Gregory's (laughs) motives in 591, or do you want to to touch that? Yeah, Yeah.
1: we can touch it. Um, So what really is going on is that if there is this bloodline, because the church in Rome is all based on Peter, and Peter being the head and the first and the greatest, if there is a bloodline, they've immediately tried to squelch it, because that would divide the power, right? You have this church of Mary and John that's showing up in southern france and in the the british isles and uh you're trying to consolidate power basically we'll talk more about a bloodline but uh, so if
0: we castigate mary if we make her into a prostitute which by the way this isn't in the scriptures she's not a prostitute in the scriptures. well look at
1: every picture i mean how many art books do i have over here about her Right? The penitent sinner. She's always half but, disrobed but and so text, evil. Right, yeah.
0: Right? In the text, she's legit. If you can make her into a prostitute, then you basically have taken whatever she has to say, and she's just kind of like not relevant.
1: Yeah. You're just silencing her in her own right, even without the bloodline. The other thing that Pope Gregory did is he conflated all of the Marys into one. Okay. That's where we're going to run up against a lot of problems. In all of these books I recommend, a lot of times she's conflated with Mary of Bethany. And you have Mary the mother, you have Mary Salome. And so Gregory just makes her the sinful woman, the prostitute, the person who anointed Mary of Bethany and Mary Magdalene. And so we've got to re-separate like separate those ones out. Okay, he's
0: just combining them.
1: Yep. Um, the other thing is that the uh, Catholic Church officially rescinded that in 1969. On Mary Magdalene's feast day, July 22nd.
0: Didn't they make her a saint too? Yes. So she went from prostitute to saint. Yeah. Which is a good deal.
1: Well, you know, it only took a thousand years. Yeah. Hey. Well done.
0: But she's got a feast day, which is right by my birthday in July. July,
1: Oh, is it? July 22nd. My
0: birthday is July 21st. Oh, there you go. That's how I'm going to remember her feast day now.
1: Yeah. And what's so neat is that the text that's read on her feast day is from the Song of Songs or Song of Solomon which is really amazing. That's the whole song of the bride and the bridegroom. So if she's not the bride, I don't know.
0: Okay, good. Was she called Mary Magdalene because of a location? There's this fishing village off the coast of the Sea of Galilee.
1: Let's talk about Magdala. Here's, a, here's another myth about her, that she's from this fishing village up by Galilee. Um, not even true. It didn't even have that name. Now, if you're going on a tour Absolutely, go to Magdala. They've built this ridiculously beautiful church and it honors women and it's just beautiful. It's got this picture in the basement you've got to see of the woman touching the hem of Christ's robe. It's all done in the golden mean. It will, I'm not sure a piece of art has impacted me as much as that, uh, beside the Lady of Shalott, which I think is Mary too, by the way. But anyway, Magdala in the time of Christ is named Terakia, it's the name of the town. It doesn't even have that name. Um, and that's according to Josephus in the Jewish War, has about 40,000 inhabitants, it has a hippodrome. So it's very uh, Romanized. And the so
0: hippodrome, th- big place where the horses can run. Yeah, around. like yeah. Ben-Hur, yeah, right? Think Ben-Hur, yeah.
1: So the other thing I wanted to bring up about <clears throat> a sinful person In your scriptural text, it doesn't just apply to someone that we would say is sinful, right? Smokers, the drinkers, the gamblers, like I'm quoting Indigo Girls here, but um, it also means someone outside the tradition. So like a Samaritan would be considered a sinful person because they're outside of the main tradition, right? They're heretics, Um, someone who's not part of this blood line of israel could also be considered that and so when you look at that you have to look at is this just someone they don't like is this someone who's you know you know the whole uh Parable of the Samaritan, the good Samaritan, right? Yeah. Outside the tradition, they're untouchable.
0: Well, in the scriptures, there's always this insider-outsider group. Yeah. And we always write about our, the outsiders and we denigrate them. It's even happening in the Book of Mormon, right? In Mosiah 10, where they denigrate the outsiders. And Absolutely. You, you can't say that all the Lamanites fit that description, but but yeah, that's kind of what they did. That's When they wrote scripture, these are people.
1: It's human nature. Yeah, that's what we do. But I think it helps to see that as part of like a sinner, right? We immediately go to Harlot. And sadly we still do that with women today, right? So anyway, there's a lot there's a lot of options there.
0: I don't know where I first heard this, but I remember being a kid hearing about Mary Magdalene and then Seven Devils and somebody equated it with her being a prostitute. And I remember the first time I read the gospels, I was looking for that. And oh, really? I never found it. Yeah, I was like, Well, I don't see where this is. Yeah,
1: it's not there. It's not in there. And it's especially not there in the Greek or the Latin. So there you go. Like, well, don't read Latin. I shouldn't say that. But I do know Pecatrix and Meratrix and You know the words. Yeah. So anyway, it was that was the fishing town. And it's very Hellenized. According to Josephus, uh, the name Magdala Nunia, which is the Tower of the Fish, shows up about the 4th to 5th century in the Talmud. So um, it's not even possible
0: so she's probably not from there. So what? What say you, Mandy Green? What, <laughs> All where, right, where, where, let's where, do
1: the good stuff. Well, Magdala comes from the Greek, Migdala, and Migdal is the tower. Mm. It's the tower, um, and the tower of strength. And and anciently, you would build the tower right in the center of the city, and everyone would come to that for protection, for supplies, for you know information. Um, it's huge. Now what's so interesting, I just figured this out last week. I don't know why I'm so slow, but I was staring at that word in Hebrew, and if you take off the M, which means with or from, what's left? Gadol.
0: Isn't that strength?
1: Greatness, strength.
0: Greatness, yeah. Might. I'm 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 learning Hebrew, so I was close. Yeah, yeah. No, you got it. Yeah.
1: Great. Large. So it means from greatness. Okay. From strength, that's Migdala. totally different
0: than from the fishing village,
1: yeah, do you see how we just robbed her of power right Pretty there? Cool, yeah, and then the ah is just our feminine ending, so from great the woman from greatness and strength and power, I like that it's rad, yeah, and it's true, even better, so that's where we get Migdala, and that's that's where it comes from. It has nothing to do with fishing,
0: okay, you know what I <laughs> I'm gonna say this. We gotta get this written out. So maybe we'll write this up and put it in the show notes. Just that word, yeah, and break it down. Yeah, do the Mandy Green breakdown. Yeah, okay, cool.
1: I call it Mandy Midrash. I mean, yes. you just quote me this. I'm my own. I'm my own translator in these in these instances. Okay. Um, in the Greek, Magdalene that ain ending also means someone who was honored or elevated. So Magdalene or Magdalena. I mean.
0: Totally different, Same thing. Totally different meaning. Yeah,
1: it's it's there. We just don't study and know enough, okay. and we just took Pope Gregory for his word, right? Yeah. Well,
0: I'm glad they took it back. I don't know when you said it, it was like sometime in nineteen sixty nine. Hey, that's a good year. Brian Adams wrote that song, and then yeah. Mary gets she gets put. He back, got his so.
1: first real six string.
0: That's good. Okay, so we've covered a little bit who she is as far as tradition. A little bit of Luke 7 and a little bit about the location of this place.
1: Let's talk about Luke 8.
0: Luke 8. Okay, let's go to Luke 8. So verses 1 through 3, right? Yeah. Do you want me to read those? Yeah, that'd be great. Okay. It came to pass afterward that he went throughout every city and village, preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, and the 12 were with him, and certain women, which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary, called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils, and Joanna, the wife of, however you say that word, Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others, which ministered unto him of their substance. So there's Mary right there in Luke yeah. 8, verse 2.
1: Yeah. And every time she's mentioned, she's actually mentioned first. Yeah. And you have to say, why in the world is Mary Magdalene always mentioned first? Even above Mary, the mother of Christ.
0: I think I read somewhere in a commentary that every time the women followers of Jesus are mentioned, she's always she is. The first one. Every, it's not just here. It's like every time.
1: She's the high elevated. She's the tower. She's a big deal. She's the tower. She's it. Okay. So that's that's important to know. Let's talk about the seven de- demons or seven devils. Now, this is a really um, amazing, interesting thing. I just want you to hang with me and follow me through as I pull at these threads, because I'm going to have to pull at a few different places, all right? Um, the Greek word there, daimon... And I'm looking at Liddell and Scott's Greek-English lexicon. So that's the standard for academic Greek. Um, and it takes it from all of the classical Greek novels. And so this is where we're getting this definition. The first definition is a god or a goddess, a divine power. The second definition is power that controls one's fate or destiny. And the third definition is Something higher than man, or someone higher than man and lower than God. And then I had to go to the Theron Smith Bible Dictionary to find the last and lowest definition of a demon or an evil spirit. So that makes me say, wait a second, there's something godlike going on here. She's not possessed of demons.
0: It says in verse two that she, and this, I'm reading the King James, but it just says she, it says she's been healed of seven spirits and infirmities. Out of whom went seven devils.
1: Yeah. So from from who had gone out seven devils, the way I'm gonna read that in uh Mandy Greek, but backed up by Lidell and Scott is seven spiritual levels. She had come out from okay. seven heavens. Now, this is probably going to be a super new concept to many of you. So I'm going to give do the best I can and give you as much information for you to go search this but anciently it was believed that there were seven celestial heavens so we're talking seven celestial heavens and um in the ascension of isaiah and i recommend this book so much by R- get the translation by rh charles we'll put all these books in like a yeah,
0: reading list yeah the there. show notes are going to have all the links on amazon
1: and and the ascension of isaiah it says that christ Uh, is at the seventh level of the celestial heavens. Satan's also there. And he fell from that level. And then you have to go to Egyptian religion, which is that when you achieve that, they also have seven celestial heavens. And when you achieve that seventh celestial heaven, and this is in Hugh Nibley's uh, The Message of the Joseph Smith Papyri, you are called a son of the morning or a daughter of the dawn. Okay. But then you read in Isaiah, when Satan fell, oh, he has fallen, a son of the morning. Like, how is it possible that someone at that level could have fallen?
0: So if I'm hearing you right, because our <laughs> listeners, we've never introduced this idea to No, them. I'm... And it's, and it's kind of outside the purview of a lot of our scriptural texts. And yet Joseph Smith in section 76 is dropping... Yeah. Hey, we've got these levels, right? And yeah. Early church members are freaking out, like, what's going on yeah. here? So if I'm hearing you right, there's this idea of there's the mortal sphere and there's levels to the heavens, and the seventh being like the greatest.
1: The greatest, right? Let me read to you from Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith. I'm on page 304 and 305. Paul ascended into the third heavens and he could understand the three principal rounds of Jacob's ladder. Jacob's ladder, same thing, Right? All of these things, they talk about ascension. They talk about going up. And this, Mike talks a lot about Jewish apostasy. So maybe we'll have to come back and do another whole thing on this.
0: I would love to. <laughs> and by the way, when you went to the temple, you ascended.
1: Yes. Enough, right? And we still ascend. You still go to higher ground. Yeah. Um, the celestial, the terrestrial, and the celestial glories of kingdoms where Paul saw and heard things which were not lawful for him to utter. Now, here's where Joseph Smith is money. I could explain a hundredfold more than I ever have of the glories of the kingdoms manifested to me in the vision where I permitted and were the people prepared to receive them. Um, there's another excerpt here where he right here on page three o one, Paul saw the third heavens, and I more. So Joseph Smith has clearly gone beyond the third heaven. The other place I'm going to point you is the Book of Enoch. Uh, President Kimball in nineteen like, 1975 to 1977 asked Hugh Nibley to write articles about the Book of Enoch, and he said every member of the church should read the Book of Enoch. Now, I understand this is apocryphal literature, Uh, But there you have a prophet going on record saying, hey, read the book of Enoch. Yeah.
0: Do do we want to just reference that section 91 where Joseph says, do I read this? Do I translate it? let pull it out. Because I think
1: a lot of people when I bust out Apocrypha are like, well, we're not supposed to read Apocrypha. And I'm like, we need to reread section 91 that says, read it with the spirit and it will teach you a lot. He doesn't need to translate it. Do you have that, Mike?
0: Yeah, I'll read it. Okay. I'll just read a little bit of it. Section 91 Uh, Verily thus saith the Lord concerning the Apocrypha, there are many things contained therein that are true, and it is mostly translated correctly. There are many things contained therein that are not true, which are the interpolations by the hands of men. Verily I say unto you, it is not needful that the Apocrypha should be translated. Therefore, whoso readeth, let him understand, for the Spirit manifesteth truth. And whoso is enlightened by the Spirit shall obtain benefit therefrom. So if I'm hearing you right, a couple things. Hugh Nibley writes these articles in there in the church magazines and a bunch of them correlating, showing the book of Enoch, how it correlates a lot of it with Moses. There's stuff in there that's good. Section 91 says, hey, it's mostly good stuff. Mandy, I'm hearing you say, read it and use the spirit to kind of get through this. Yeah. So in this book that you're holding in your hand, you want to just reference it?
1: The three books of Enoch compiled by David Hammer.
0: So what you're saying is in the book of Enoch, there are these levels.
1: There are these seven celestial levels. Okay. And if you want to read those Ensign articles, they're called A Strange Thing in the Land. Okay. And they show up from 1975 to 77. And if you know more languages and you've read more original texts in the language than Nibley, come at me. Yeah, he knew a couple, He's, I think. Oh, gosh.
0: Two or three. I don't know. A couple. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 23 <laughs> is is the is the number I'm thinking of. Yeah. And here's something else I just feel like I should share with you, um, because we're going to talk a lot about Nag- the Nag Hammadi texts, which are some texts that were buried about third, fourth century and were dug up in Egypt in 1945. Um, we don't. We probably should be open to things like that because. The Book of Mormon is as as apocryphal as it gets. We dug it out of the ground. It was translated by the power of God, not scholars. But digging up texts that have been buried by people who loved truth and wanted to preserve it at any cost should not be something that's unfamiliar to us it as freak saints. Us out. No, no, okay, no. All right. So where were we going with so that? So we
0: were, we were doing Mary, oh, the Seven Devils. We were reading Luke eight, verse mm-hmm. two. And you're taking So I she's coming out of So something.
1: here's what I contend that she is she is someone equal in power and light and ability and love to the Savior. She's a seventh level being as well. Okay. And I think
0: totally different, like a one eighty from this, right? Yes. Total one eighty.
1: Yes. Um so that's that's my take on it from the Greek. I don't I don't know how you could pull out uh, the fourth definition and maybe maybe I'm mistaken, but I'm telling you this is a woman of tremendous power and insight and if she is the bride of Christ, she would be an equal opposite. She would be someone just as magnificent.
0: So to recap, not fishing village, woman of strength from the tower. Not casting out seven demons, but coming out of the highest heaven. Yeah. The Ascension of
1: Isaiah is the one that talks about Christ descending down through the seven heavens.
0: Yeah. And by the way, the Ascension of Isaiah, I think... So awesome. I know I read it, but I'm pretty sure that's for free on the... There's a great website that kind of has these translations. Oh, really? We'll we'll link that one.
1: Yeah, R.H. Charles is the best translation of any of these books. um, If you, he's an Oxford don, but the Ascension of Isaiah I love because it talks about Christ coming down through each level and how they he has to disguise himself Mm. because if Satan recognizes that he's coming down, whoa, right? So even like you know in the Proto Evangelium of James. He comes down in disguise, right? And Satan doesn't know he's here until he's here. And, I mean, there's just amazing stuff. That's cool. Yeah. Seven is also a number for completeness and wholeness. Just good stuff. The other thing we need to talk about in Luke 8, the last thing is that these women provided for his ministry and the ministry of all those people who went with him of their own possessions. Like, I would translate that Greek as... Many other women who served, ministered, or supplied their needs out of their own wealth or property.
0: Are you in Luke eight still? Luke
1: eight, verse three.
0: Okay, so the, you know, I think that some of these women probably were well-to-do. Yeah, is that fair to say?
1: Women of of substance and property and, and money. I mean, send that out tells a missionary you
0: like is going to cost some money. Yeah, as you know.
1: Well, you have this entourage. Mom. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Now, we just started two
1: missions. I'm in the 800 going to a thousand club.
0: Pretty awesome. I, you know, I call that the, the Lexus payment club or the two boat payment club or <laughs> whatever. My
1: white Jeep. All I want is to own a white Jeep.
0: <laughs> so for those of you out there that are missionary moms, Mandy's one of one of you.
1: So what I love and and when you think about a tower, and I'm going to read you an excerpt from my favorite book ever about her. A tower is something that's strong. It doesn't fall. It doesn't fold. It doesn't, it's not easily broken down. Um, All of the accounts also list her at the cross. And there's always these depictions of these fainting women at the cross. Would you be a fainting woman at the cross if you were Mary Magdalene? I don't picture her that way. I think she understands the divine purposes that are going on. I think she knows everything has to happen. I'm sure it's awful. I mean, all of us know how it feels to watch someone you love in pain. You're like, just give it to me. Like, let me take it. But she's unflinching. She doesn't leave him. She doesn't abandon him. And those other women don't either. So women, you better write yourself in this story because the people standing by him are the women. Peter's gone. He's nowhere. John the Beloved's there, in some apocryphal literature. Matthew is there. That's it. That's it. It's cool. So these women, like they are gritty, tough, amazing women. You put yourself there, and they are not going anywhere. I mean,
0: I don't know if this fits, Mandy, but you know Isaiah five. The parable of the vineyard, right in the middle of the vineyard, there's the tower. Yes. And in Isaiah 5, Isaiah says, You guys have been naughty, and the fence is going to come down. Yeah. The tower is going to get wrecked. And in my mind's eye, I see the tower as the temple. Would that be a really good fit to look at her as she's strong, but she's also a temple woman? She's a a woman who's been initiated in the mysteries.
1: Oh, absolutely. She's been initiated far beyond anyone around her. In this book called The Gospel of the Beloved Companion, she has a vision of. These seven heavens, and God and his wife are in the eighth, and she goes through each branch. Of, it's a tree. Go read First Nephi 11. It's a tree. And it Revelation 22. Through. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it's the tree, right? The
1: tree's always associated with the divine feminine.
0: And kings and queens. Ugh. The symbol of the king and queen is well, the Well,
1: Song of Songs also talks about the tower, um, Micah, the tower of the flock, like I'm giving you a giant key word. If you want to go study Tower Magdala, Mm -hmm. it's her. Song of Songs talks about the towers and the tower. I mean, pull the thread, see what happens. So
0: she's right there at the foot of the tree, as it were. Yeah. The cross, which is a, it's a tree. Yeah. And she's looking at the king, who is a symbol of the tree. She's right there at the, we're back to 1 Nephi 8. She's at the foot of the tree.
1: She's well, and the tree is what's holding the sun actually. Like, I read first oh, Nephi good. 11 in a way more feminine sense. To me, the tree is female, okay, it always has been because uh, Nephi's vision he says, you know, he sees the tree and he goes, Give me the interpretation, he's shown a virgin, yeah. So the fruit of the tree is Jesus Christ, in my reading, and there's many ways to read that. Absolutely. I'm not, I w- you will never hear me say, this verse means this. It means all 20 things that it means, because truth has is layered. So, but one layer definitely, the mother bears the fruit. So the tree bears the fruit, and the son That's is good. the fruit on the tree.
0: If you, the listener, are the first time hearing this, go check out our First Nephi 8 and 11 stuff that we did, Yeah, where some of this stuff's laid out. This is good. Good geek out.
1: Yeah. And Dan Peterson's Nephi's Asherah. I was at Utah State when he read that to a group of women. And we, you know, there were, all of us just gasped. It's right in front of our faces. And we just, we get in a habit with scripture that we don't read the words that are right in front of us. We read what we've always read. I would encourage you to read every word and try and, and read it in a new light.
0: I think sometimes we read what we think is there because of what we've been taught, yeah. and we have to remember that. Keep going back to the well, keep drinking, yeah. because I, I'm sure you've had this experience probably all the time, where you go back and read something, and you're like, "I've read that 50 times. How did I miss that?"
1: Right. Yeah, it pops right out, and you're yeah. like, "I'm so dumb.
0: I don't know what happened."
1: Migdala, right in front of my face for the last five years. Exactly. Um, so anyway, I want you to, I want you women to paint yourself into that story, absolutely. And paint yourself into the Savior's life and love and care. I mean, the Savior is the ultimate proponent of women. Look at his ministry. I mean, women in Palestine, you can't vote. You can't be outside of your home. You have to have your hair covered. You really don't have any rights. You belong to your father, and then you're sold, and you belong to your—well, I shouldn't say sold You're You have a dowry, and you're given to your husband, who then basically owns you. Um, And here comes Jesus Christ, first person he tells, he's the Messiah, a woman, a Samaritan at the well. All of those are big key things. Um, His ministry includes women. He lets women touch him. He lets unclean women touch him. I mean...
0: The witnesses were women.
1: The witnesses are women. Mary Magdalene's the first witness. She's the apostle to the apostles because she's sent to proclaim that good news to them. Um, they're at the cross. I mean, do not write yourself out of his stories at all. Don't. All right. So let's go to John 20. Let's talk about resurrection morning. Um, something in John that I that I love that I think we we kind of read over a little bit is that it's still dark. She's going to the tomb and it's still dark. I just want you to picture this woman walking through the old city in the middle of the night. Well, it's not, it's the third watch, right? The fourth watch, three to six, um, going to this tomb. Again, unflinching, unmoved. I mean, being associated with the Savior at this period of time, not, not a great thing. If you're picked out of a crowd, if someone knows you, if those guards, what are they going to do?
0: Well, because they think that Jesus is this uh, guy trying to kind of like a political rabble rouser. Yeah. Right? Got to get this guy out. So yeah. you're like a, a criminal, essentially.
1: Yeah. Everything's at heightened, you know, security, right? Uh, it's Passover. Pilots already got everyone's all stirred up. There's been a lot going on. And like I said, there she is. She's not going anywhere.
0: First place, first one there.
1: She's unflinching. She's amazing. So it's still dark.
0: So that, I'm going to read that. I'm going to read that. let one. It. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early when it was yet dark unto the sepulcher and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. So she gets there and she's like, well, where is, what's going on? Why is the stone taken away? So she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and saith unto them, they have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher and we know not where they have laid him.
1: Now, here is the piece that I want to insert into this picture. This is the piece you would read on the feast day of Mary Magdalene. Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon, chapter 3. By night on my bed I sought him whom my soul loveth. I sought him, but I found him not. I will rise now and go about the city in the streets, and in the broad ways I will seek him whom my soul loveth. I sought him, but I found him not." The watchmen that go about the city found me, to whom I said, saw ye him whom my soul loveth. It was but a little while that I passed from them, and I found him whom my soul loveth. I held him and would not let him go. And I'll stop there.
0: So that Song of Solomon verses one through four. Four. So uh, as you're reading that, I this is what what's hit me, is I've never read it this way, but the image that you're painting, is John twenty? Yeah, it's right there.
1: Yeah, and if I can get personal, um, my last visit in Jerusalem, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is said to be the place where Christ was crucified and buried. It's outside the city walls at the time of Christ. Uh, the Templars, you know, that's where they built their whole. That's that is the center point of Christianity. Um, And it's a really interesting building. If you've been there and there's been lots of crowds, you'll say, what is holy about this place? But um, if you're jet lagged like I was and staying by there, I crept down there at about 530 in the morning right when they opened it. And I went into the chapel of Mary Magdalene, which is on the left side of uh, the structure. And I read the Song of Songs. And you're there and you can see the streets. And you can see the houses, and it was powerful. It was powerful. I want to quote this uh, this Rabbi Ben Akiva uh, was born uh, in the first century A.D., and he is quoted as saying uh, in the Mishah Yadayim, the whole world is not worth the day on which the Song of Songs was given to Israel. For all scriptures are holy, and the Song of Songs is the holy of holies. Boom.
0: So to you, the listener, you might have been I, I think I've been a kind of a culture to think that, you know, the Song of Solomon is not good because of its references to intimacy. Yeah. And yet here's this invitation to read it with new eyes. Yep. For many of our listeners, maybe to read it for the first time.
1: Yes, yes. I know it, it gets a bad rap, but if there is something to uh sacred marriage and communion and doctrine and covenants 132 and all these different things maybe we can look at it with holy eyes look at it as a holy of holies or as a bridal chamber as you know in these ancient temple rites there's always the the bridal chamber, right? This festival that procures uh, posterity and fertility for the land. I mean, these are ancient, ancient things. This isn't the first time it's shown up. Um, and Solomon is said to have have authored the Song of Songs. And what was Solomon known to have? Wisdom, the key word for divine feminine wisdom. Hakmah in Hebrew, Sophia in Greek, and um, wisdom is a huge part of Solomon's power and insight and ability. And so, if you're if you're reading that as being, uh, we've got to put the two yoke like the two pieces together, and we've got to sh- show that like God is God because He's equally yoked with a woman who is God. Elohim is a plural.
0: I love that about our theology where we acknowledge it. I know we don't talk about it a lot. But I love that we're acknowledging that.
1: Yes. It's you, a start. You can't possibly be God by yourself.
0: I, it, it's impo- you can't be a king without a queen. Exactly. There's no family if there isn't the mother. You can't yeah. have both. Yeah. Um, I think some of our reading of Song of Solomon is kind of, shall I say, tainted by our Victorian background where yes. you know, I can't even – there's certain words we don't even say. So I like to say things like – because I'm trying to be careful with this podcast and when I teach – I say things like intimacy. Uh, the Song of Solomon mentions some things that are intimate. And yet some of this stuff's in Isaiah too. And the translators just kind of work their way through some yeah. of this and they kind of soften it. Yeah. Um, and so today we kind of have this, you know, we have a yardstick out and we're like three <laughs> feet away. We're social distancing. Even now from... <laughs>
1: I'm social distancing, right? <laughs> right? We're social distancing with Song of Solomon.
0: We're kind of scared. But if if I'm reading this right, in, in essence, what you're saying, what I'm hearing you say is that this is prophetic stuff. And it's it's yes. seeing her. Okay, I
1: mean, anciently, it was about communion. It was the way that you created life and power and light. And in Greek, it's called the heros gamos, or the, the sacred wedding or sacred marriage. And again, Joseph Smith papyri, the, all of these old myths, quote unquote, is myth really just a story to teach us truth? And we kind of just look at it as a story. Is there something here? I mean, that's the whole invitation. Try it out. Think about it. Think about it. See what the Spirit does with it. It's up to you. I'm just a girl talking. I'm just a, just a woman talking, but um, there's a lot there. There's a lot there. And also, why is Christ referencing himself as a bridegroom all the time? That's a question I have. And when you start digging at that, why is he doing that? And I know the church is the bride, but there's got to be another bride. How could he be a God again?
0: Back to 132.
1: 132. How are you a God without without a goddess? And yeah. I know
0: the church's official position is we take no position. And so whenever I'm in front of students, I say, hey, there's no position. But at the same time, traditionally, historically, Orson Hyde and other apostles have spoken, quite frankly, about this, this idea that, of course, Jesus was fully human. Yeah. He was fully divine, but he was fully human. And part of the human experience, at least in first century Judaism, was a young man was married. Lots of texts, lots of yeah. things where the rabbis say, you're not even a man if you're not married. And so... And there's
1: no record of him not being married, which right. which actually like shows that he would have been married, because I think that would have been a huge you know, show stopping peace to be like, how can he be a rabbi? He's not even married. You can't even listen to him. He's not even a man.
0: So the text is silent. We're not being silent. We're talking about this stuff. <laughs> it's in tradition. It's it's out there.
1: It is. Absolutely. Orson Hyde, uh, in, in regard to John 21, in October conference, 1854 said, is there not here manifested the affections of a wife? These words speak of the kindred ties and sympathies that are common to that relation of husband, a husband and a wife. And uh, there's a record of Joseph F. Smith. Someone wrote him a letter saying, was, was Jesus married? And he's like, yes, but do not speak of it. Yeah. Don't throw your pearls before swine. I hope I am not doing that. The last thing I would ever do is uh, speak disrespectfully or in a non-sacred way about this tremendous woman. But I think it is time for us to unveil her, so to speak, and to know her better. Yeah.
0: The scriptures are silent on specifics, but yet it's right there in front of you. You know, read it with careful eyes, do a careful reading. And if I'm reading this right, this is an experience where the first person that he's going to see when he's resurrected is this woman, which is probably not just a disciple. Probably a really yes, close Yes, you associate. could
1: definitely, you could conclude that for sure. Well, the two apostles come, you know, the one Peter steps in, and the beloved one saw and believed. But what is so interesting, I loved, is in verse 10, where it says, So the disciples returned again to their homes, but Mary stood outside. That's the tower.
0: She's right there. I love you know, that the tower.
1: I mean, she's not going anywhere. She's not going anywhere. She's not. Um, and and who knows how much this text has been tampered with too. Um, but um, that's that's a that return word just brings to mind the Hebrew word for repent, which is shuv, which is turn around. Right? They saw this beautiful, amazing miracle. They know that the body was laid there. This massive stones rolled away. And there's nothing there. Right. And they turn away from it. Now, I'm not sure that John turned away from it the same way that Peter did, right? Because it says he saw and believed. He was like, giddy up, like, here we go. Yeah. But um, And I can't interpolate. I'm interpolating what Peter did. But Peter went back home, right? Mary doesn't go anywhere. She's right there. Yeah. And I'm just going to read you my translation of this. Maria set herself outside, like established herself. That's what that word means to me. Outside the tomb, exhibiting strong emotion. It's it's translated as crying. I don't know that you could say absolutely that she's crying. She's exhibiting a strong emotion. And she stooped down to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in brilliant light sitting there, one at the head and the other at the feet of the place where Jesus had been lying. What's interesting is in some of the ancient anointing uh, ordinances, Mike, uh, the king was anointed on the feet and the head. Interesting that John has that detail. Again, we just read over it, right? It's that's, 20 that's verses. That's what it meant
0: to be a Christ. Yeah. He was anointed.
1: Messiah means anointed, right? And he was anointed prior to his burial. She's always in art. She's always displayed with her alabaster jar. That's how you can tell it's Mary Magdalene. She's holding the jar. The mother doesn't, but she's always holding that anointing jar because the wife anoints the husband prior to the wedding. Uh, The queen anoints the king. It's always the woman that anoints the man in kingship, in, in weddings, and things like that. Anyway,
0: think about the gift, the gift of children. This image of a woman when she hands the child to her husband on the day those children are born, the the throne, the kingdom. Yeah. It's her gift to him. That's just the image in my head. I, I always say this there is no kingdom without a queen. Yeah. You have to have
1: both. Yeah. And we've got to look at our setting, which I totally skipped over. Like, if we were really doing this, we would spend hours here, but you're in a garden right? You're in a garden. That's representing Eden. That's representing this different paradise, right? There's trees in the garden. Anyway, there's a lot there too to unpack if you want to read that. Uh, Verse 13, they said to her, woman, why are you, I'll just say weeping. She said to them, they have taken away my master. I do not know where they have established him or laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? What is it you are searching for? And it's the word for desire or searching for. It's not like, what are you looking for? It's like, what are you seeking? Like, what's in, what are you looking for? Thinking that it was the gardener. Now, this word only shows up one time in the New Testament that I can find, Mike. I don't know that we're translating that right. But there you go. This singular word this one time in this particular chapter
0: what is it really so in a lot of the hebrew stuff that i read the hebrew authors talk about to adam and eve were sent to be like the height of their creative purposes was to be gardeners to tend and it has temple implications too i'm sure you read this like the word dress and keep or those are how they talk about the priests yep. t- taking care of the of the temple maybe he is the prototypical keeper of the temple yeah. i i'm just throwing that out there i don't know yeah
1: but well and i i just don't want you to say the gardener and think of like i grow flowers and trees
0: yeah we're, we're not talking garden yeah we're talking yeah.
1: something else uh she said to him sir if you have borne him away tell me where you have put him and i will take him away i just think of you know what this brings to mind, Mike, and I know you totally will hear me on this. I think of Arwen when the nine black riders are chasing Frodo and she passes the river. And she's, you know, she reins upon her horse and she's like, if you want him, come and claim him. Yeah, good luck. And I picture Mary like that times a million. Like, don't touch him. You give him to me. Right? And Jesus said to her, Miriam. He would called her by name. And she turned herself around there's that turning again, right? There's that looking away from the tomb and death and emptiness and what she thought the world was handing. And when she turned herself around, the Savior was right there. And I think that's such a great lesson for all of us, is like we look at the telestial world in our lives and the things we've suffered and death and the empty tomb, all of our hopes and dreams. But I think if you turn around and face the garden and the gardener, that's that's the vision.
0: In other words, it, this is our life. Like we are her. We need to turn to him. Yeah. Especially in the time of great distress or upheaval when everything is a mess. Yeah. We can focus on the mess or we can focus on Jesus.
1: Yep. You can look at the empty tomb or you can turn yourself around. Where are you looking? Repent. Uh, and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni. Which... Can be translated master Prince or chief or husband. And Jesus said to her, <clears throat> do not hold on to me, cling to me. Um it also can be can mean like be attached to me, for I have not yet ascended. There's your key piece right there again, ascended or to climb a mountain the mountain of the Lord's house, the seven celestial heavens, this temple to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father and to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and reported to the disciples, I have seen, I have been a witness, and I've been in the presence of God, is how I translate it in Greek. I think yours says, I have seen the Master. And she told him that she had said these things. So there's this embrace. There's this hold. There's a lot of ways you could read that word, opto. You have a sacred embrace. You have, she's clinging and holding to him.
0: Now, in First Temple Israelite religion, the king and queen would embrace as part of as part of an ordinance it was a ritual it was symbolic of something nephi talks about this where he says you know i'm encircled about by the arms of his love or and hugh Nibley talks about this too doesn't he where the embrace was a was a symbol yeah and it was to hugh Nibley, he talks about it's a symbol of the atonement to be made
1: one why don't we read this gospel of the beloved companion right now so mary has this and this is an apocryphal text It's said to belong to uh, this group of people in Languedoc, which is post-Christ crucifixion. And here's the tradition. If you want to come on tour with me in the fall, we go visit some of these sites in England. But um, the tradition is that Mary is pregnant with a daughter, that she and Jesus have two sons, and she's pregnant when Christ is killed. So throw that into the mix. And after Jesus is killed, of course, if there's any type of bloodline, they're going to go after the bloodline. Because if he's the Messiah, if he's the king. Got
0: to wipe him out.
1: Yeah. And so it said that Joseph of Arimathea, who is by tradition, Christ's great uncle, take her, and John the Beloved, they take her into Egypt. The daughter is born. Her name is Sarah. And from Egypt, they sail on land in the south of France uh in the mediterranean and they landed at a, per, a place called Marie de la Mer. Now every other french city on the sea is called sur la mer like on like on the ocean or on the yeah on the sea. That one's de la Mer from out of the sea. And the tradition there is that Mary came from out of the sea there. There's this giant church and every year on the feast day of Saint Mary Magdalene they bring out this boat. And they do this huge procession of her coming out of the sea, and if you think I'm totally crazy, go look at uh Botticelli's Birth of Venus, because she's the goddess of love, so you have Mary the mother, but mary the the Mary the wife is the goddess of love, Eros, and so some of these things, like they tie back into her, and in my mind, they've always been referencing her. All of these types and shadows are also of her, Um, and so she comes out of the sea, and there's that tremendous chapel. Um, She wanders around that region. She's a tremendous teacher and instructor. Um, John takes the sons up to England and Glastonbury and other places, and anyway.
0: And there's tons of tradition on this, right? There's tons. What do you tell somebody who says, uh, hold up, like, I've never heard any of this stuff before. Like, this is so foreign to
1: me. Okay, so this is where it gets really, really exciting because this isn't as foreign to us as we think. So uh, a lot of our modern fairy tales are actually retellings of this story, Mike. Like what? Cinderella, for instance.
0: Okay, we all know Cinderella.
1: Yeah, so Cinderella comes from originally France and... The beautiful thing about this is that Mary Magdalene is known as what's called the Black Madonna. So you have the church making Mary the Mother like this pristine, pure woman, right? The Black Madonna represents the goddess of love, like this very Aphrodite-like figure. And all over Southern France, I have a book right here, Mike. It has hundreds of Black Madonnas that have been dug up. Chartres Cathedral. The Black Madonna is in the basement of Sharsk. It's built by Templars, right right an hour south of Paris. Um, Even uh, Notre Dame, like Notre Dame de Paris, Our Lady of Paris, that was built on an ancient temple site to Isis. And for all of this, Isis is this goddess in uh, the sister bride in Egyptian religion who takes the dead body of her husband and brings it back to life. And Isis is always in black. Her icon is the throne on her head. Mm -hmm. And so Cinderella actually goes all the way back to this, the Song of Solomon, I'm black but comely you're talking about the sister bride. And so Cinderella, she's got the soot and the ash, right? There's your clue that this is the black Madonna. This is who we're talking about. Interesting. And that we, all of these tales have this quest for the true counterpart of the prince, how the prince is looking for the lost bride. Okay, so with Cinderella,
0: I can't find her. How am I gonna find her? And she's
1: been like silenced and made a slave and like brought to the lowest possible state. And kept away and kept out of sight. Like
0: in tradition, she's become a prostitute due to the traditions of men.
1: Or we don't know anything about her, right? Mm -hmm. Same story. She's locked away. And the groom has to rediscover her. Briar Rose, same thing. Rose is, uh, she has two flowers that represent her, the rose and the lily. So the rose is Eros, right? Same letters. And she's put to sleep right so let me she guess disappears. are we going to
0: Sleeping Beauty with this yes
1: okay right and then the prince has to go through this huge tangle of thorns and conquer the beast to liberate her with love's true kiss which is like this sacred marriage type of motif so that's another one the little mermaid super awesome great example because Mary Magdalene is always depicted with red hair that's one of the ways you know her she's, she's Celtic this one has some beautiful um, symbols of the the mermaid, right? So there's something called the procession of the equinoxes, and we move into a new age about every 2,600 years. So at the time of Christ, the cosmic clock s- moves into the age of Pisces, which is the two fish, right? But if you look at how they're positioned, it's very much a yin and yang, white, dark, male, female, this duality. And so... The Little Mermaid, uh, you have like the merman, but then the mermaid comes from Mary Magdalene. Look at her fin, Mike. There's a giant M on her torso. Her fin makes an M. She comes out of the sea in France. She has red hair. And what happens to the Little Mermaid? You don't watch many Disney no, movies? I've
0: seen it. So what happens to her? She gets laid. She loses her voice. <laughs> she all oh she loses her voice. She becomes silent. Ursula gets her. <laughs> She's, She's silenced, silenced okay. by the sea witch. She can't right? talk, right? Okay.
1: But then the sea witch impersonates her. So we're looking at this story and we're like, what's going on? But if you look at the book of Revelation, there's the harlot and there's the bride.
0: The dragon is the sea witch yes. impersonating the true woman. Because the there's two women in Revelation. Bride, there's the right one right? and the bad one. yeah. So she
1: takes the voice, uses it. And Ariel is silenced, and the prince has to figure out the true counterpart. So
0: My mouth is hanging open right now. (laughs) But I never made the connection of Ursula, the little mermaid, the two women in the book of Revelation, and she's taking the voice, and she's like, no, I'm the true woman. So do you think the people that wrote these stories understood the tradition, and they're using veiled symbolism, or do you think this just came out by chance? Like, what's your take on how these stories evolved? Because you've covered Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, Little Mermaid. And, you know, thanks, Disney, for making those into movies. I know. And every kid knows those well, stories. Well, those come
1: from these really ancient stories of Isis and Osiris, or uh, Demuzi and Iana, or Adonis and Aphrodite, like these Sumerian Canaanite goddess-type stories. And the fact that Cinderella itself comes from out of France, and I think that's right when they start to squish this idea of a bloodline, the Church of Mary Magdalene, all of this goes in. And so you get, um, the Holy grail is another tale that comes out of this, right? King Arthur and the round table and the quest for the Holy grail, which is where we think of it as a cup. But if you just separate the French words a little differently, it says holy blood.
0: Is that Sangreal? Yeah, oh, that is. Okay.
1: And, um, and so you have that, but the, the cup is actually like The female womb, that's the chalice. That's Mm -hmm. what holds the blood, which produces this bloodline. Uh, Robin Hood and Maid Marian, right? In England, Christ is known as the Green Man. And so Robin Hood is like the hero and he's the Green Man. And what does he do? He has to go rescue Maid Marian. And anyway, that was performed at Roslyn Chapel every year. And Rosalind's deeply tied into this whole story. So like I said, pull a string. Okay. See if it keeps pulling. um, And then there's something to that. These black Madonnas, anytime you see a black Madonna, that's how they would differentiate this goddess of love from the mother. These two different Madonnas. So look at every Madonna you've ever seen. And these black Madonnas are, and they show up. Always in Templar ritual, in Templar cathedrals, during the Crusades, when they go take over Jerusalem, they actually restore Godfrey de Bouillon as like this king of Jerusalem in the Church of the Holy Sepulcher built by Templars. And all the vestments are black, Mike.
0: What do you tell our listener who says, hold up? My mind just exploded. And I'll give you an example. Like, what do you say to a listener who's never heard of the Black Madonna? And they're like, Mandy, I want to read more about this. What do you tell them?
1: Well, you just start looking up uh, Black Madonnas. I have a book here. I'll have Mike put it in the show notes about all the Black Madonnas they've dug up in France. Um, you can do studies about ISIS in, in Egypt. And she's the sister bride. Look at the Song of Solomon. Like, The story of blackness keeps showing up. And it's hiddenness, it's okay. veiled. It's like any symbol, Mike. They have several meanings, but hiddenness, being veiled, Can't being silenced, right? Being shut out. And I think she is someone that requires looking. You you have to want to know her. You have to want to know that. Eyes to see, ears to hear. I mean, those passages actually show up a ton in some of these texts that have to do with sacred marriage and things like that, so
0: honestly, like my eyes are lighting up while you're talking, and you're like, Mike, I'm just starting. What I
1: know, you- I just, I just barely hit it, but uh, this is from the Gospel of the Beloved Companion, uh, page seventy six, chapter forty one, verse one. At the end of that week, when all the disciples had gathered at the house at Bethany, the Mygdala. And I need to pause there and say, a lot of times she's called Mary the Magdalene or Mary the Tower, right? Which would be more of an epithet, describing her strength. Came to them and told them what she had seen and what Yeshua had said. But they were grieved and wept greatly, saying, How shall we go out and preach the gospel of the kingdom of the Son of Humanity? If they did not spare him, how will they spare us? Then the Migdala stood up, greeted them all, and raising her right hand, said to her brethren, Only from the truth I tell you, do not weep and do not grieve, or be irresolute for his grace and that of the one who sent him will be entirely with you and will protect you, but rather let us praise his greatness, for he has prepared us and made us truly human. When the Migdala said that, she turned their hearts to the good. And they began to discuss the words of Yeshua, Simon Kepha said to the Migdala sister, we know that he loved you more than any other among women. Tell us the words of the Rabbi which you remember, which you know and understand, but we do not, nor have we heard them and This is where Mike she goes on to tell about this great tree that doesn't change um forty two four there are eight boughs on this tree. And each bough bears its own fruit, which you must eat in all of its fullness. The fruit of the, As the fruit of the tree in the garden caused Adam and Chaba to fall into darkness, so this fruit will grant to you the light of the Spirit that is eternal life. Between each bough is a gate and a guardian who challenges the unworthy who try to pass. And then she has this amazing ascent experience through all of these different boughs of the tree. And
0: do you see Revelation 22 here with the different branches and the different fruits yes, as a connection? Okay.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I feel I should stop there, but there's a lot there. There's a lot there if you want to look at that text. Um how she she goes through this and at the very top um and as up from a great distance I heard the voice of my master tell me Miriam, whom I have called the Migdala Now you have seen the all and have known the truth of yourself. The truth is that I am. Now you have become the completion of completions. And thus the vision ended. And she tells this beautiful vision and it's silent. And then Simon's like, I don't know. They grumbled against her among themselves and um, said, how could a woman teach us? And she she starts to weep and say, I'm telling you what the Savior told me to tell you. And Levi, who would be Matthew, said, If the rabbi made her worthy, who were you indeed to reject her? Surely as his companion, Yeshua knew her better than all others. That is why he loved her more than us. Rather, let us be ashamed and do as she says. Let us put on perfect humanity and acquire it as she has done. And that's... That's kind of where it ends.
0: Wow. Clearly, she's a big deal.
1: She's huge. And you can see right off the bat, she's met with opposition. Um, and again, ladies, write yourself into this text. The first person he did not see was uh, the president of the church. It was a woman. And he actually saw many other women before he appeared to Peter and some of these other disciples. Do not write yourself out of there. Don't say he doesn't talk to me and he doesn't care about me and he doesn't know my native concerns and he doesn't know my name and I'm not able to converse with him. I mean, I think our temple liturgy is one million percent about piercing the veil. And the veil is gossamer. It's meant to be pierced. If it weren't, it would be a wall. It would be brick. It would be something impenetrable don't you think
0: yeah i've read that but i haven't read it that way so i'm gonna go back and reread some of this
1: read her vision i i wish we had time to go through all of it but it's sublime i mean it is sublime
0: so she's taken she goes to egypt she goes to france uh she probably has protectors and you mentioned her sons maybe go with Joseph of Arimathea, and there's traditions there. I've, I have I've read some of this by English scholars that talk about the traditions, and it th- yeah. wasn't Joseph like a tinsmith or something? Yeah. Yeah, it's, he had a,
1: tin, a lucrative tin trade in Glastonbury, England.
0: And so you, you'll you take people there and yes. say, hey, let's go visit these That's places. That's the first
1: place we visit, and it's Glastonbury. I've been some amazing places in my life. I don't feel anywhere the way I feel when I feel at Glastonbury. So here's a tradition about Glastonbury that's really wonderful among many. And again, we're just scratching the surface. I'm trying to be careful here. It's said that Joseph of Arimathea took Jesus up there as a youth. So our biblical narrative drops off at 12, right? Grew in wisdom and sat your favor with God and man. That's it, yeah. Right? Well, it's said in England, and if you talk to someone who's from England, they'll just say, of course, Christ is an Englishman. Um and you'll notice he's always painted with this auburny hair. Like he's got this this uh more celtic look. Mary Magdalene is always represented with red hair. That's one of the ways you know her. She's she's celtic. Um so it's said that in the tradition um that he's brought there by his uncle. He has a lucrative tin trade there in Glastonbury. And that's where he meets Mary Magdalene and they they're married and there's a little church there like a double church, which um, follows kind of the old circular Templar prototype and the Temple of Solomon. And um, it says, made by Jesus for Mary. And it's interpreted to be Jesus, his son, for, for Mary, his mother. You can look at that any way you want, but it is purported that that marriage took place there in Glastonbury, Glastonbury uh-huh. Abbey, on those grounds.
0: See, I got to go to England with you. You do. got Bright's Hill, September. If somebody wanted to know how they could maybe look you up, what's your website called?
1: So my website is just my my name, Mandy Brook Green, M A N D Y B R O O K E G R E E N. Brook with an E like Ann with an E if you ever watched Anne of Green Gables. Okay. And I will I will update that as soon as we get the final tour dates. We were going to go in in the end of April, but
0: then everything got closed.
1: My corona or whatever, yeah.
0: So when you go, do you t- you talk about these traditions? We
1: do. We people. talk about the bloodline. We talk about where events may have happened. We talk about the suns. Uh, we visit Lincoln Cathedral, which is a place to that it was purported that Mary Magdalene ascended um, into heaven. Uh, Rosalind Chapel, if you've watched Da Vinci Code or anything like that, there's some elements of of. That tradition in there for sure, um, and so that's the that's the English leg of it. Uh, we're looking at doing the France leg of it here in the next year or two.
0: Do you want to talk about like what happens to her?
1: Sure. I think. Well, we kind of said she ends up in France. She stays with her daughter, who ends up marrying, uh, marrying the king there, and that's where you get this line of Merovingian kings. And that's where that bloodline comes from. And then the sons go up into England. We don't know much about the second son, but the first son uh, marries. So you've got the two different aspects of the bloodline, which actually reconnect uh, when Henry marries Eleanor of Aquitaine. Um, and then, anyway, it's the, it's the rod of Ephraim and the rod of Judah. So Jesus is Judah, and it's purported that Mary Magdalene is from Ephraim. If you want to read more about that, um, Dynasty of the Holy Grail is a book written by Vern Swanson, who used to uh, be over the Springfield Museum of Art. Um, He has a book called Dynasty of the Holy Grail.
0: So good. I don't own it because I can't afford it right now. It's so expensive. I own it in Kindle. I got it for like eight bucks on Kindle, but... Wow, that's awesome. Well, the hardback is what I want. So I have a copy of the hardback from the library and every page has sticky notes. And so I feel like I've got to just... (laughs) It's just so good. Dynasty of the Holy Grail. He gets into this in the tradition and the artwork. And doesn't he kind of illustrate how the bloodline of the Savior... Is just all over the place. Now, I'm just going to throw this out there. Section 113, the stump that's cut down and then the rod, the cotter that comes out. And Joseph's like, what's the stump? And section 113, the Savior says, well, that's Jesus. And then, well, what's this, this shoot that comes out? And it's partly a descendant of Jesse and partly a descendant of Ephraim. I think that's tied into what you're talking about.
1: It is. I know, Mike, you've talked about the Jewish apostasy, right? How they change everything. So where Mary's going to show up, she's going to show up from, there's a there's four splinter groups who come off from this apostasy. You've got the Essenes who go out into the desert, which is where we get the Dead Sea Scrolls. You have the Samaritans who refuse to change temple ceremony. And so they go out to Mount Gerizim, and they're out there. And then you have a group called the Rechabites, and... That means the rebellers, basically. They get in a ship and they sail up to England. And they, um, they just kind of mix with the Celtic church there. And guess what? They totally just kind of merge into one because they're all practicing and believing the same thing, interestingly enough. And so um, King Hezekiah's daughter is taken with them. And she marries, she marries up there, and that's where that bloodline comes from. And it that's where it's said to be that she's from the bloodline of Ephraim, which in in some cases is represented by a unicorn. And so even today in the English uh coat of arms for the for the queen, you've got the lion and the unicorn, and you're going to start seeing those two show up together. Which is um Judah and Ephraim. Boom. I mean, I'm just pulling threads here. <laughs> I'm not making any of this up. I'm just pulling threads. So awesome. Yeah, it it, uh, it keeps going. Now, a little word of caution on all of these books. All of them have some elements of truth. And that's where you need to read it with the spirit of truth and uh, kind of like let it sit in your heart. And things that keep showing up, they'll speak to you. They'll kind of stand out. Things that don't, don't worry about it. Don't try and make it all agree, because you just have to see what keeps kind of popping up.
0: That's kind of like everything, though. Like, even the Old Testament disagrees with itself all over the place. Yeah. Historical documents do this all the time. For example, you read the accounts of, you know, the dimensions of the walls around Babylon. Nobody can get the figures the same. Um, that's kind of history. It's just yeah. kind of a, I, I like to say, history's messy. That's kind of the phrase that I use. And so is Scripture. is messy, and that's okay. All right, Mandy. So i want to read this verse to you. I'm going to throw this at you, and it's Revelation 22:17. Tell me what you do with this. The Spirit and the Bride say, "Come," and let him that heareth say, "Come," and let him that is athirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely.
1: Love it. That's all feminine imagery. I know. I know. We always read it as the church, but how could there possibly not be a bride? And this whole, like, the ten virgins, what's it about? The bridegroom coming, the end, the feast, right? The restoration, healing the land. Micah, there's the most beautiful stuff in this um, this book here called The Woman with the Alabaster Jar about the desert blooming again. You know, this prophecy of the desert blooming like a rose. The rose is a symbol for Mary Magdalene. It always has been. Um, the lily is also a symbol of her, but you have this beautiful image of water coming out of the temple. Water is definitely a feminine um, symbol coming out of the temple and light and um, like the softer light of the moon, which is feminine, like healing the land. And uh, Starbird's contention is that it's so ultra masculine. I'm totally not male bashing her, Mike, but our world is so ultra masculine that we've like if you only have the light of the sun, it starts to burn everything and the de- you get a desert it's parched there's no water there's no cool and so this prophecy of Micah about water flowing and the desert blossoming is the return of the bride she's been missing from our lives she's been missing from our liturgy she's been missing in every possible place she's been we've we've let we've left her out in the wilderness for dead right but really it's it's bringing back that balance of male and female that perfect you know synchronicity between the two that really will heal the land and heal the hurts and you know have water and light and cool and all these beautiful symbols these old testament prophets hosea Isaiah, I mean, all the time in Isaiah, and Micah, and Zechariah, they all talk about this return of the bride and this healing of the land.
0: In Nauvoo, Joseph introduces the sisters in Relief Society. He says, I'm going to give you the keys of the priesthood. In the temple, men and women, it's egalitarian. They receive that which they receive, and then the highest ordinance is marriage, and it's it's a key and it's a lock. It's both this creative power yep. is equal. Yeah. So we're back to that, right? But the we're but the temple isn't a guy only thing.
1: No, right? it's, and it's, godhood it's and all of these different things. I have a quote here from Adam Miller. If you if uh I really recommend his book Letters to a Young Mormon. Great book. Uh he spoke at BYU 2 years ago and I love this. In addition to quote, in addition to arguing that the differences between men and women are real and important and ser- and spiritually significant, The proclamation also boldly claims that men and women are intended by divine design to be equal partners. It seems increasingly obvious to me that in our day, defending the family means rooting out our world's misogyny. Defending the family means defending women from both the subtle and violent forms of degradation, abuse, and marginalization that riddle our world. It means taking seriously Perhaps for the first time in the history of the world, the solemn declaration that God intends men and women to be equal partners. In my view, this will be the defining moral issue of our generation. Close quote. There it is. Amen. There it is. And I, I mean, brides are veiled. Uh women are veiled. Um, definitely sacred, definitely the pearls, definitely the something you don't mess around with in a, in a lighthearted way. But again, bales are meant to be lifted and pierced. And uh, my encouragement would be if your heart is burning or something speaking to you inside of yourself, uh, because if you're a woman, you come from this tremendous heritage. Let that yeah. see some light.
0: And the heritage, which is beautiful, is has been shrouded we've had lots of tradition i don't know the verse in doctrine and covenants but where the lord essentially says traditions of men have kind of messed stuff up oh
1: let's read it doctrine yeah. and covenants ninety three thirty nine. it's one of my favorite verses because it says the devil comes and takes how does he take away light through one disobedience second the traditions of their fathers that's going to rob you of so much light and if you look at the the attack on women, it started with Eve and Eden and it's never let up. Never has. It's never let up.
0: I, I love that. 9339. You you just read it essentially. And then verse 40 says, I've commanded you to bring up your children in light and truth. And so that's the restoration of the gospel. And I love President Nelson where he says, We're still doing this. It's still happening.
1: There's light. I want to close with one last yeah, quote here. Please. Uh, This is from the Gospel of the Beloved Companion. When I read this, it was like an earthquake in my soul. Much like the 5.7 of, you know, Wednesday. And I don't even lend out this book because it's so precious to me. I I just like to have it next to me. I can't explain why, but I want to read this last thing about the amygdala. And I want to encourage you. I know it's... It's a crazy time right now. A lot of people are are giving in to fear. And I just want to encourage you to think of this Mignola, this woman who is unmoved and unflinching and courageous in the face of everything that Jerusalem and the Romans and the Pharisees and everyone wants to throw at her. You're not going to touch her. She's not budging. And find that within yourself. So let's read about this. Uh, Six days before the Passover, Jeshua came to Bethany. They're all at the table. Then Miriam, the beloved companion, took a jar of pure and expensive spikenard and poured it upon the head of Yeshua and anointed him. That's the Messiah or the Christos, the anointed one. And the house was full of the sweet fragrance of the ointment. And seeing what she had done, the disciples therefore grumbled against her among themselves. But hearing this, Yeshua said to them, leave her be and in the Greek it's with an exclamation mark like Don't touch her, don't talk about her. She has anointed me for what I am come to do and done what she is appointed to do. Only from the truth I tell you, whenever they speak of me, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. You do not know or understand what she has done. Do you know that is in all four Gospels? How many of those stories, Mike, are in all four Gospels?
0: Well, the atonement. That's about it. Yeah. Right? We don't even get the birth narrative. We just read over it. We're like, like, oh, anointed. Yeah, Mark skips the birth narrative, right? So Yeah,
1: there are very, very few instances that show up in all four. All right, here's the money. Let's bring it home. I tell you this, when all have abandoned me, only she shall stand beside me like a tower. A tower built on a high hill and fortified cannot fall, nor can it be hidden from this day forth. She shall be known as Amygdala, for she shall be as a tower to my flock. And the time will soon come when her tower shall stand alone beside mine.
0: That's awesome. Thank you. You're so welcome. Thank you for your time. Uh, To you, the listener, you have been given just some good stuff to think about and chew on. Thank you for listening and with that we will we'll see you next time